Thank you, Grace. And, and the children can uh, head on to Children's Church. And as they go, I want to ask you a question, and I want you to answer out loud. What is the number one commandment? Okay. Love God. Okay, so what is the number one commandment? Love, love God. Yeah, I know there's many variations of how to phrase it. That is the, the centerpiece of what we're about as a church, as Dolan's Grove, and just as Christians. Love God. Another way to say that would be worship God. And what we've been studying in this passage in Romans has been sort of demystifying our ideas of what worship is. Uh, some of us feel as though worship is only the time that we sing and what we do through music. But we've seen very clearly that that is one very important slice of it, but that is not the totality of what worship means. Worship is a uh, fleshy, a um, very practical thing. So we've been in something of a worship workshop for weeks now as we've been trying to get through Romans 12, just verses 9 through 13. So we've seen worship as discernment, going into the Bible to find guidance for real everyday uh, situations. We've seen worship as church, just being the church, using your gifts as part of the church is worship. If you uh, were in nursery, that was worship this morning. Uh, We've seen worship as love, genuinely loving and living for the benefit of each other. That's worship. We've seen worship as honoring each other. We've seen worship as being passionate about God and good things and passionately hating the bad things. We've seen worship as enduring suffering and trials. Some of you have worshiped all week long and the form your worship has taken has just simply been crying out to God for the endurance to keep going. That's worship. That is recognizing and responding to God as he is, as worthy of our trust and of our allegiance and of our lives. So today, our last verse in this paragraph of Romans 12, 9 through 13, we're going to see, I've broken it up into three ways to worship. And I initially was going to preach this passage, these couple of verses, 9 through 13, in one sermon. And I just could not do it. So here we are. We're finishing this paragraph, moving lightning speed through Romans. Um, I want to read it, and then I want us just to to pray, simply asking God to speak to us. And if you're able, would you please stand just as a simple expression of honor as we read God's word, and it's on the PowerPoint. This is Romans 12, beginning at verse 9. Let love Be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. And here's our verse for today. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Let's pray. Father, would you please speak clearly to us and plainly 
help us to understand what this means to contribute to the needs of the saints and to seek to show hospitality. Or may these two practical commands open up uh, wide doors for us to worship in real life, day-to-day, practical ways for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. So we have two commands. And if you go to the next one, I think I've isolated just that verse. One more. There it is. Bam. Twelve thirteen. Two commands. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Now, the way I'm framing this, I want you to think about it, is in terms of openness. Three different ways of being open. You can worship God by being open with your resources, by being open with your needs, and by being open with your life. Okay? This is all very straightforward and very practical. I expect us to walk out of here uh, with action items, things to, to do in response to what God has done for us through Jesus. But as always, I have to remind you, these are things we do in response to what God has done for us through Jesus. These are not things we do to earn God's favor or to make him think well of us or to look good for others. God has done it all for you through Jesus. It's finished. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are adopted, you are a son or daughter, you are cleansed. When he sees you, he sees Jesus's perfection. So this is not to earn any good standing with God. You've got it. This is just how we now live in light of it, okay? So, one way to worship God in response to what he's done for us through Jesus is to be open with our resources. That word contribute, that begins verse 13, it, uh, it's a lot more than just chip in. Like you folks, you gave some coats into the box. That was sort of chipping in to the cause for folks who don't have coats, who are cold, and it's awesome. You should definitely do that, and that's part of it. But that word contribute really has the idea of partnering. It has the idea of a partnership. Um, it's distributing and sharing and participating in somebody's need as a partner. So it's as though we're all business partners. When you became a Christian, you entered into a financial partnership with all the other Christians of the globe especially with those of this fellowship once you decided to throw your lot in with us here at Doolin's Grove. You went into a financial partnership with all the other folks that you see here. Now, some of you may not have done so so willingly if you realize that's what you were committing yourself to. But we're brothers and sisters, and brothers and sisters take care of each other. So one way to worship is by contributing, by partnering with other people in their need, sharing their need. Their need becomes your need. Your resources become their resources. You following along with me so far? Pretty, pretty plain, pretty simple. Their liabilities become your liabilities. Your wealth becomes their wealth. Within the church, resources flow toward the need. There shouldn't be any hindrance for our resources to flow toward our needs within the church as individuals. 
And it should do that so that it looks like the picture we see in Acts. Don't flip here, just listen. Well, I mean, you can flip there. I'm not going to tell you you can't flip somewhere. You can flip there. Acts chapter 4, I'm going to read a paragraph starting with verse 32. This is sort of what it looked like once the Holy Spirit exploded into the church and everything took off. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. That's quite a picture of the internal generosity of the church. I just want to let that sink in just a little bit. See, that picture that I just read from Acts, that's not just a neat thing that a group of people can do. That is uniquely Christian. That's the kind of practical worship that comes about in the life of a group of people who are being transformed by Jesus Christ, whose grip on their possessions gets looser and looser and looser, and whose grip on each other in love grows tighter and tighter and tighter. Contribute to the needs of of the saints. So some practical ideas here. I've tried to research this and there's different statistics depending on who you read. But the rough average of what I have seen seems to be that about 70% of the world's Christians are in poverty. So perhaps your first step in expressing this sort of worship is to look out to the nations, to the people groups that are truly, truly impoverished, where the kids only have one tattered shirt and no pants. I had some friends go to Africa to minister to some villages where the gospel had just taken root, and they have nothing. Nothing. So maybe your first step is to do a little research and figure out where is the deepest poverty of our brothers and sisters, and how can I contribute and partner with them Now, thinking more internally here as Doolin's Grove, um, this is something that our deacons and deaconesses are great at. Your deacons and deaconesses really, really care about you. They really, really love you. They really, really want to know when you have needs that we as a church can rally around you and help you with. Almost all of their work is done I hate to use the word secret, but it's done discreetly because it's not everybody's business. But your deacons and deaconesses help a lot of people. Not just within our church, but even, you know, in the community, people that we know. So when you give to the deacons fund, you know, we give 10% to crisis assistance ministry. And the other 90% is sort of their toolbox to use for this very purpose to partner with, to contribute to the needs of the saints here. And it's beautiful. So I I made just a little list generally of some of the things I have seen our deacons and deaconesses do. And I'm more privy to the deacons 
because I go to those meetings. The deaconesses probably do all kinds of stuff I don't even know about. So here's a list of some of the things that your deacons and deaconesses do. Okay? Uh, I have seen them help people in need through research. You probably didn't see that one coming, did you? A lot of research goes into being a deacon or a deaconess, trying to figure out what is the best way to help. So I've seen them do a lot of work, a lot of legwork, researching affordable housing for folks who are in trouble in terms of housing. I've seen them do a lot of research in terms of what other organizations are doing. Uh, One deacon worked really hard for quite a while and put together a binder for me with just an alphabetized, organized list of all the agencies that folks could take advantage of should they need it for food or, you know, Thanksgiving meal or transportation or housing. Because it's a complicated world out there. If you've ever faced real poverty, real in terms of what we know here, and you start trying to get help, it gets real complicated real quickly. And I've seen your deacons and deaconesses walk alongside people through these processes. And it's wonderful. I've seen them... Um, actually there, there's consideration among one of our deacons of starting some financial counseling or like a financial class to help people manage their money and their resources well. I've seen them help with uh, just physical labor, moving people in, moving people out, remodeling. I've seen them help provide transportation for people. I've seen them help uh, purchase supplies and groceries. I've seen them use the money that you give to help people pay bills or pay down crushing debts. This is all happening. You, you guys just don't hear about it. Because, you know, our deacons and deaconesses don't walk around like bragging about all the awesome stuff they do. But they do a lot of awesome stuff. And it's worship. What goes on during a deaconess meeting or a deacon meeting is worship. So, actually... Nobody likes when I do this, but it never stops me. Um, if you're a deacon or a deaconess, would you stand up so folks can be reminded who our deacons and deaconesses are? If you're a deacon or deaconess, please stand up. I won't make you do anything embarrassing other than stand there. Okay, so these are the ones who are with us this morning. I just want to say thank you and honor you for everything that you guys have done this year. Thank you. I know you didn't do it so that you could be honored or applauded, but we love you. And Paul commanded us to honor each other. So get mad at Paul. Don't get mad at me. So maybe another step you could take real practically to worship. Maybe you've forgotten about the deacon's fund and you haven't given it to it in a while. Maybe give to the deacon's fund. Or grab one of these deacons or deaconesses or some of the others who aren't here with us this morning and pull them aside and tell them of some of your resources that maybe they can use in connecting with folks in need. Maybe you have a rental property that nobody's in right now. Let our deacons and deaconesses know that might be something very helpful to somebody in need. Maybe you have a vehicle that just sits there. That could be something your deacons or deaconesses could really use to help somebody in need of transportation. Things like that. Real things, practical things. You see how worship is just so nitty-gritty? It's not just hands-in-the-air singing. That's sort of the most... Uh, focused and emotional aspect of it, but it's real practical activities. Okay, one more idea. Maybe you can contribute to the needs of the saints 
and partner with people in their need through individual relationships. Some of you are doing this right now that I'm aware of. I'm not going to make all of you stand up because often that's very private. But maybe you know someone who is in need. I just want to encourage you, go to them. Share that need. Share your resources with them. That's worship. Who has a need that you know that you can help them with? And some of you may be drawn a blank. And I want to nudge you just a little bit. Is the reason you don't know anyone who has a need because you don't actually know anyone? I have this perpetual fear that we will do church together for decades without ever actually becoming one, united, knowing each other. Think about who you know here well enough that if they had a real financial need that they would let you know. Is it a big list of people? Is it a short list of people? Is it an empty list? Maybe your first step here is just to get to know people. Become a fellowship. This happens best in smaller units. It's not going to happen here during the worship service. It's going to happen during Sunday school or at house to house or at young at heart or in the men's fellowship or the youth group. It's going to happen smaller clusters. It's going to happen when you go to lunch together after church on Sundays. So I want to encourage you, get to know each other and share each other's needs because that's worship. Okay, the second thing that you can open up to worship is your needs. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Implied within that command is that you're aware of needs among the saints. This is the other side of the partnership. It's absolutely vital for the church to worship in this way. We cannot be ashamed and embarrassed and hide our needs. Being open about our needs enables the church to worship. It enables your brothers and sisters to contribute to your needs. And I've had many, several conversations in the last six months with folks in need who don't want anyone to know. Now I want you to know I understand it, but I also want you to know that I don't think it's healthy. Your need and my need, it's about more than just you and me. It's about God's people becoming what God is trying to make them. Your need and my need is an opportunity for God's people to grow and to worship. You know, we've worked through a lot in Romans. And one thing that we know for sure is that God is sovereign. Our needs don't just come out of nowhere. And they're not pointless. God has things he wants to do through our needs. So your need is about more than just you, it's about our church and it's about God's glory. Christians will experience need. It's in a list of other very common aspects of life. You love each other, 
Run away from evil things. Run toward good things. Be patient in tribulation. Pray and contribute to each other's needs. Just as common as prayer is our needs. And I point that out because some of you may listen to preachers who would have you believe that the stronger your faith, the less your needs. But that's just not true. Nowhere in scripture can you really walk away with that. You know, Christians throughout all of history have had needs. You have needs. I have needs. So, what, whatever they're the result of, it's not something to be ashamed of or embarrassed about. I was reading on a website of a teacher that I really respect. His name is Alan Knox. Um, I know Matt Larkin knows who I'm talking about. Um, and he wrote about when he and his whole family was sick with the flu. So he was sick, his wife was sick, and his two or three, however many young children, were sick with the flu. Has anybody ever had the flu? A couple? Okay. Not as many. You guys, strong bunch. Um, you, you just can't operate when you have the flu and you have a fever and, and when your children have the flu. And so one of the people in his church called him and said, is there anything I can do for you? Can I bring you some soup? Can I do something for you? And he said, no, I'm fine. Thank you. I really appreciate the offer. I'm good. I'm fine. And she said, she didn't mean anything by it, but she said, I knew you wouldn't let me help. I just wanted to offer. And it really stuck with him and it really bothered him that he had gained a reputation that he wasn't going to let anybody help him. Now, it, it seems noble to refuse to accept help. And maybe there is nobility behind it. But maybe there's other things behind it that aren't so pretty. I mean, after all, that's what Christianity is. A bunch of helpless people who were saved by God because they couldn't do anything. I mean, that's sort of our whole identity, isn't it? It doesn't sound very heroic, but we're not the heroes of this story. Jesus is. So I want you to ask yourself, if this is you and you know it, um, if you struggle to allow people to help you, to contribute, to share your needs, ask yourself, is this desire to not be helped an expression of responsibility and nobility? Or is it an expression of pride disguised as responsibility and nobility? We all need to consider that and let the Holy Spirit do work in our hearts here. Now, along with the other uh, being open with your resources, I'm curious, who do you know well enough that you could share your need with? Do you know people well enough that you'd be comfortable saying, listen, you know, in this economy, many of us are in this position. Listen, I'm in a bit of trouble. I can't pay this bill. I can't pay that bill. I need help. Have you grown over these decades together as a church close enough with people that you can be that honest and that humble? Now, if not, that presents, that's a whole other issue. 
that we need to work on, but that's not the topic of my sermon today. So I just want to invite you, if you have a need, tell someone. And if you don't have someone that you are friends deep enough with to share it with, tell a deacon or a deaconess. Okay, so these practical ways to worship. Be open with your resources, be open with your needs, and lastly, be open with your life. And this brings us to the second half of the verse. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. I was really surprised by this this second part of this verse this week. Um, I don't, you know, some people consider hospitality one of the spiritual gifts I'm sure that it is. The Holy Spirit gifts us in many, many ways. Um, I don't feel that that's my spiritual gift. So I haven't given it a whole lot of thought, honestly. And this is one of the benefits of working through a book. Because you preach on all of it. Things you wouldn't think to preach on. So here I am, preaching about hospitality. I wonder if some of you feel that you have the gift of hospitality. You need to know that Christian hospitality is much more than... Martha Stewart uh, inviting people over to fancy Thanksgiving-style dinners. It is aggressively inviting people into your life. Emphasis on aggressively. See that word, uh, seek? I wonder what your translations say. Some of them probably, I don't know, I, I looked them up and I can't remember now, but they say different things, but none of them satisfy that original language. The original language, that is a very aggressive word. It means, basically it means to chase, chase down like a hunter chases his prey. This is what the state trooper is doing when they fly past you on 485, going to pull somebody over. To seek to show hospitality is to chase down opportunities to show hospitality like a lion. Chasing down his prey. This word seek shows up a lot of places in the Bible. And it's almost always translated as the word persecute. Because it has this heavy connotation of hunting. Hunting people down. You know Paul was a persecutor before he became a Christian. He hunted down Christians and tortured them into admitting what they were doing. And you know was a party to at least one murder. Stephen maybe more. And he's using this word for what we should do in terms of hospitality. Does that surprise you guys? It really surprises me. When I think hospitality, I think of like my grandma and just sort of an open door policy. You can come and sit down and maybe she has a pie warming on the windowsill. My grandma never did that, but this is the image. This is an aggressive act of worship. So we need to figure out what hospitality actually means. And literally, it just means befriending strangers. The original word, I'm going to talk Greek here as though I know what I'm doing. I don't know Greek that well, but there's resources to help people like me. Uh, The word is philonexia. Am I butchering that, Matt? You've studied some Greek. Something like philonexia, okay? That puts together two Greek words, philos or philos, which means friend, and Xenos, which means stranger. So a word that means friend and a word that means stranger are connected. And it's the Greek word that we translate into hospitality. All right? So literally it means befriending strangers. Okay? 
uh, a guy named William Barclay refers to this as the duty of the open door. This is the deepest level of worshipful openness that we're called to as Christians. It always begins with invitation and it is always practical. So you see it a lot in the New Testament when itinerant preachers would come through. It was a different culture then. Uh, The inns were kind of unsavory. So Christians would take them into their house. Okay, they didn't know them. They would take them in. Often this idea of hospitality was used for that. Or just strangers who were traveling in. It was dangerous for them to sleep on the streets. Christians would take them in. We are supposed to aggressively chase down opportunities to befriend strangers in this way. Okay. Now, if you're thinking, if you're following along with me and you're thinking about this, I would hope that a lot of questions are bubbling up. Like, how far do we go with this? What about, you know, the safety of my family? Am I just supposed to take every stranger in need into my home? What about, okay, picture you're going down Albemarle Road, headed into Charlotte, and you're approaching a stoplight and you see the guy with the cardboard sign. And he looks rough. Okay? Picture this. Some of you women, you're in the car by yourself. And as luck would have it, as the lights change yellow and then red, your car is the car right beside him. Okay? And he's looking at you. You're hoping he'll walk down the aisle and look at the other drivers, but he's looking at you. What do you do? You heard your pastor tell you, aggressively chase down opportunities to be hospitable and befriend strangers. Does Pastor Matt expect you to open your door and say, hop in, I'll take you to my house. We'll go by Home Depot, I'll make a copy of my key. What's mine is yours. No? Well, if it doesn't mean that, what does it mean? You guys are really scared. You're scared I'm going to be behind you in the car behind you when that happens. I'm going to be watching you. A lot of questions come up when you start really thinking about this hospitality thing. It's it's deeper and more complicated than I suspected. Um, So I've been praying about this all week. I've been searching the scriptures about this, trying to figure out, you know, I don't want my wife picking up the guy at the intersection. But is that lack of faith in me? Or is it right? This is something for us to wrestle with. But here's some questions to ask that I think will help us think about it. Uh, Number one, this is the clearest scriptural insight to help us think about this. Does inviting this individual into my life, into my home, into my car, whatever, does inviting this individual in expose the church to danger? See, very clearly... In the Bible, we're told not to open up our life and our home to false teachers. We're not to associate with them and we're not to welcome them in. Now, again, that's connected to that culture when itinerant teachers would come through and Christians would take them into their home and feed them and take care of them, protect them so they could teach in the churches. And the apostles said, if they're false teacher, if they're coming in with a different gospel, do not take them into your home. Do not aid and abet them. Okay, he also says that for unrepentant believers in First Corinthians, I meant to give you the, the references for these. It'll be on the blog tomorrow. But First Corinthians uh, five, he basically tells Christians, don't open your home and associate with unrepentant believers. 
Okay, so if this is somebody living in blatant sin who knows it's wrong and who just doesn't care, you know, somebody who's just left his family, cheated on his wife or vice versa or whatever, we're not supposed to be super hospitable to Christians who refuse to repent. That false teacher reference is in 2 John verses 10 and 11, by the way. So we know that in our hospitality, we need to beware that we're not facilitating uh, harm to the church through false teaching or harm to the individual by enabling them to not repent. Okay? Now, the rest of these are a little more speculative, but I think they're true. Another good question to ask, does inviting this individual in hinder your relationship with Christ? Does inviting this individual into your life bring along with it temptations that you are too weak to withstand? Now, this is a, a bizarre example, but to give you an idea of what I'm talking about, most young single men should not go downtown and pick up prostitutes to try to bring home and rehabilitate. Okay? It's, it's not a good idea. Some hospitality is not a good idea. You need to know yourself and know if you're too weak in certain ways that this individual is going to cause danger. Okay? Another good question Uh, This is really practical. I know this may feel more like a workshop than a sermon, but this is practical. Does extending hospitality to this individual enable them to remain in broken relationships? Let me put that a little more clearly. Does it facilitate their refusal to repent and reconcile with people that they need to? Okay, an example, let's say uh, one, of your, one of your children, let's say they're teenagers, young teens, one of their friends runs away from home, runs away from their parents, and they come to your house. Now, in some situations, maybe you should take them in. Maybe they're getting abused and beaten. But in other circumstances, you probably shouldn't be that hospitable to them because you're disobeying your parents, and you're supposed to honor them. So no, I'm not going to let you sleep here. I'll drive you back to your parents. I get a lot of calls from folks in Charlotte in need. I think Doolin's Grove comes up early in the yellow pages. We get a lot of calls from folks on the other side of Charlotte. And we try to help any way we can. Not, we don't usually, we're not usually able to give them money, but I work to connect them with the church near them or something, get them connected with crisis assistance. You know, usually Richard's helping me. We try to figure out something. Um, I'm going to say maybe 75% of the time it's someone who has family in the area. But they, they're not reconciled to them. Something has cut off those relationships. Sometimes our hospitality can just facilitate that when they need to go to their family and be reconciled. It takes a lot of wisdom. It takes a lot of discretion. Um, Last one to help you think about this. Does inviting this individual into your life, does it conflict with higher priorities? Specifically, higher priority relationships. So, will it hinder your ability to love your spouse? Will bringing this individual into your life take you away from your spouse in such a way that you're not able to live for their benefit? 
Will it put your spouse in danger? You know, some of us men, especially some of us super muscular men like me, are fine with bringing strangers around because we can protect ourselves. But what if we bring them into our home and then we go off to work and they're sitting there with our kids and our wives? See, I believe that is a primary relationship that we're responsible for. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, he says, you know, it'd be better for you just not to marry anybody, but be like me. Because then you could be completely devoted to all these things of the Lord without being distracted by worldly things like your marriage and your family. He says it in a real coarse way and it takes some explaining but but the truth behind that is when you're married and you're a family man or you have kids you have a very real responsibility of care and nurturing and protection and nobody else is going to do that so you can't give that up to go and help somebody else that's foolish I, I don't think it's godly at all okay so those are just some some ways to help you think through this and by the way I have heard some horrendous stories of abuse towards children because hyper-spiritual parents invited people into their homes and they didn't take care and protect their kids. So we need to take it seriously. Now we need to worship, we need to aggressively seek out opportunities to show hospitality, but we don't need to be idiots about it. That's putting it more bluntly than I intended. But Okay, finally, I'm gonna give you some practical ideas of how to do this. And then I'm going to draw it to a close. Uh, We have some friends in Cary, North Carolina, that every year, they're Christians, they throw a massive Halloween block party. They send out invitations. Their community knows now that the Knutsons, that's their name, the Knutsons have their Halloween party every year. And everybody comes. And that is one very practical expression of hospitality. And they've gotten to know all of their neighbors. Do you know all of your neighbors? I don't know all of my neighbors. And half of them are church members. Because <laughs> I live right here. They've gotten to know all of their neighbors. Something as simple as throwing this Halloween party. But they do it intentionally as Christians to show hospitality, to invite people into their lives, to get to know them. Uh, some other friends of ours, you may have met these folks, the Lindstroms. They live in Wake Forest. They've visited before have a handful of little girls. Um, they live in this on this street that ends in a cul-de-sac, and there's probably seven houses there, counting theirs. So Kurt, my friend, goes outside to play with his kids. He owns his own business, so he you know, has flexibility in his hours. So he'll go outside to play with his kids in the cul-de-sac, and he brings enough toys for all the neighborhood kids to come out, and they just all come out, and they just all know when Mr. Kurt comes outside— All the kids run outside because he's fun and he's loving and they just play. And so the parents have grown comfortable with Kurt and Cindy. Their doors are always open to these children to come play at their house. And that is worship. You know, they're getting to show these children what Christian love looks like. And these neighbors, just by letting the kids come play together. Uh, I read of a a church that has small groups, kind of like our house-to-house groups. One of their groups has a uh, every-other-month dinner reservation at a restaurant. And they all go eat there together as a group every other month. And they know that that is a great time to invite folks, friends from outside of that circle to come 
invite them into their lives. You call that a third place. Not all people are comfortable coming to your house, but they might be comfortable getting to know you at a restaurant. Um, Super Bowl parties, a group of guys that play tennis every Saturday, inviting people into that. It doesn't have to be your house. It's just inviting people in to your life. Um, Oh, a Thanksgiving meal. Uh, a, A member of my family allowed me and Meredith to bring friends of ours into the family Thanksgiving meal. And they had never experienced a Christian family meal like that. It was huge for them. I think that was a, an example of hospitality. Last one, I was reading uh, John Piper's sermon on this, and he was telling his people one really good practical way to do this is Sunday lunches. Invite people with you to eat Sunday after church. He called it, uh, as soon as we say amen after the benediction, turning on your PWSHR your post-worship service hospitality radar. And you're looking for someone that is an outsider, a stranger, you know, doesn't have people to invite in. You know, he says, use paper plates. You don't have to be washing dishes all day on your Sunday just because you're hospitable. Just kick the kids' toys into a corner. It doesn't have to be, you know, out of a magazine Okay, thank you for hearing me out on all these practical details because I, I want us to worship in all these practical ways. It's important. Uh, the Proverbs 31 woman, you know, the epitome of a godly woman, opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. You know, Jesus taught us, he told his followers, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. You know, I'm an overseer. Some of you want to be overseers. This is one of the qualifications in the list in 1 Timothy. Hospitality is in there. This is how we worship. This is how we show our love to God. So, I'm going to pray for you. Grayson's going to come back up. We're going to sing together. And I just want you to consider, what's your next step to worship God in these ways? And then when you leave here, Take that step. Deal? Father, thank you for your word, and I thank you that you are worthy of our worship. I thank you for all these practical ways we can worship. And I pray that you would work in our hearts and our minds, give us discernment, enable us to honor you in the practical dealings of our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.